This is Fintech Cappuccino, your Saturday morning podcast with a pinch of espresso on the why and how of Fintech. The show is hosted by Brian van Wachem, CEO of RedSnap, and I'm Connie Dorstein, founding partner of Bankify. Brian, morning. I know these are challenging times for us all and are complex and uncertain, and that is exactly why I approached our next guest. Well, a recurring guest, actually. Let me guess, one of our early guests... Yes, the very first, Chris Skinner. One of my last trips out uh, out in the in the open air was actually a joint tour of the forest with him to the Nordics to discuss digitization and to promote his new book, Doing Digital. So, aside from the human element for fintechers and bankers, these are very you know challenging times too. So I thought it'd be a nice idea to catch up with him and see if he would rewrite his book. Oh, absolutely, let's talk economics, his book and updates, impact on fintech and future winners and losers. You think he can do that? Oh my goodness. Well, let's go. All right. But if you close your eyes, does it almost feel like nothing changed at all? And if you close your eyes, does it almost feel like you've been here before? How am I going to be an optimist about this? How am I going to be an optimist about this? Hey, welcome, Chris. Um, I actually promised myself not to speak to you again after the Ajax Spurs, but these are uh, special times. So um, let's 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 do this, Posca. So first of all, why did you choose this mu- music at this very moment? Brian, Connie, morning, and um, thank you for the bottle of Chateau Bonnet du Cru um, after the Tottenham win. Um, but having said that, there's no football now, so everything is postponed. Everything is on pause. And I chose that song specifically because right now I think we all need to be positive. Um, I blogged this week about the fact that although all of our business is on hold, uh, the fact that we are forced to be with our family and with our friends um, at this time is not so bad. Um, and we should be positive about it, be an optimist about it. Um Chris, looking back on this on, the, on, on this week, uh, and, and I do follow your blogs, and I thought that was a particularly nice one, actually, because it is so true. Standing still for a bit is a very good breather. But in a sea of news on this whole corona thing, what particular angle or item caught your eye? Well, I think the main thing that's uh, been a consistent thread is the fact that the technology community is being incredibly bright, innovative and positive and doing interesting things to meet the financial needs of those who are remote. Whilst the traditional financial community, because they have no digital capability, are floundering. I mean, they really are not delivering any of the government promises. And by way of example, uh, in the UK, uh, where I have my main bank, I can't even get hold of them. They've shut down their call center. Um, They've had 130,000 applications for loans and they've only delivered 983 it's disgusting yeah well i think we're going to talk about this more in depth a little bit later but um let me first uh, tell our listeners for those who don't know chris and you probably don't need any introduction at all chris skinner is one of the people who probably needs no introduction on a fintech cappuccino podcast but assumptions are the mother of all not allowed to say dirty words, so a little more on Chris. Chris Skinner is known as an independent commentator on the financial markets and fintech through his blog thefinancer.com and as the author of a range of best-selling books, Digital Bank, Value Web, Digital Human and most recently, Doing Digital. 
So Chris, in this changing time, we want to focus on two main topics today. First, the economy and financial service in particular, and then impact on fintech, and obviously your book in the light of current events. We will take the time for some depth and reflection, as we all do these days. So in fact, are you, as a high-speed global city hopper, actually able to go slow and stay in one place, or what do you? What do your days look like nowadays? Well, I mean, uh, I am going slow. Uh, like all of us, I'm locked in, self-isolating, uh, doing a little bit of shopping with a mask and gloves on. And most of the day, I'm the Incredible Hulk to two little Spider-Men. Um, so <laughs> that's my day. Um, having said that, I'm still blogging. I'm still trying to work. I'm still doing lots of discussions like this via video conferencing, as most of us are. And One of the big things, in fact, is I think um, all of us are discovering the wonder of the internet and the fact that we can do digital connectivity via video and work effectively remotely. Yeah, it's incredible. So, Chris, um, may I first ask you to go into your sort of what you're very good at, your observe, observer commentator role, and give us your analysis of this crisis on the banking landscape and, and what is in your opinion, different in how banks react and reach out now, you just spoke about it a little bit, compared to 2008, which is sort of a point in time that many people now refer to. Yeah, I mean, there's a big difference between the two crises. 2008, the banks failed, the government and the people bailed them out. In 2020, the people failed and the government's trying to bail them out, but the banks are not actually delivering. Um, and I think that's going to create a big change in how everyone looks at the world. Um, I mean, life will never be the same, same again. We all know that we're going to be very different. Um, we're going to think differently about government and about state and about money. Um, right now, I spend a lot of time philosophizing about the fact that money is just an invention. Uh, and we believed in it because that's how we paid for things. But now it's hard to believe in um, the system because, you know, governments have created trillions of dollars out of thin air. Where does it come from? Um, and nation states are trusted and wealthy are able to get the loans and the backing to create that money out of thin air. But the poor nations, I'm really worried. Um, you know, I wonder in a year from now how we'll look back at this crisis and deal with the issue of many of the African nations and South American nations that failed with the virus and didn't have the backing of nation states to invent money out of thin air. So can you, um, uh, you know, the the approach which you just discussed, is there a difference between um, the Americas, uh, Africa and Asia? Because you, of course, make the distinction between the rich and the poor countries. Do you also see differences in geographies? Well, I think there's differences in geographies and there's also differences in ha how people are being supported. So in geographies, um, you already had a lot of nations that were in crisis before the coronavirus came along. Um, Venezuela being an example uh, where the economy has failed. Um, but when you look at um, even countries that are doing quite well, like India, you know, a lockdown with four hours notice, uh, which means that every business fails. Um, and so many small businesses and people who are living on the breadline already now having nothing, it's really worrying. And it's also an example, I think, of how different nations approach things. So you can look at the Nordics and particularly Sweden, which didn't lock down. Everyone's criticizing that. But at the end of the day, um, we all struggle with the fact that 
if you don't lock down, the health system fails. If you do lock down, the economy fails. And there's a balance there, which I think is really tough. And I don't think anybody's getting it right. I think everyone's just struggling to get and muddle through. Yeah. It's more an ethical discussion, right? Let's not go there in here in this podcast, but uh, it is. It a, is, uh, and you, yeah, and you see it emerging in all of the papers globally of the last few days. Like, what's the price of so many lives eh, if so many people are out of out of work? Um, but let's hop to your book, Chris. Um, we were together only recently in Oslo, and we spoke about the why of digitization first. Like, why do banks have to digitally transform? And I think that a lot of those questions will be swept away now. But I'd love to have your view on this. Uh, you gave five forces for change at the time: the rise of fintech, uh, impact of challenger banks, the threat of big tech, regulatory drive for competition. Let's call it open banking, and of course, the lack of internal readiness, which you know I think is a very pregnant one. Um, do you look different at these five issues now, or would you order the urgency differently? You know, do you think, for instance, that challenger banks will be as attractive? or more attractive or less attractive, that people will sort of leap back to what they know? Um, I mean, we're in an interesting moment of time, um, not you know, driven by this coronavirus pandemic issue. And what it's shown me, and I think customers see this as well, is that the banks um, that were based on physical distribution are failing because they hadn't got a physical distribution disaster recovery plan. They didn't have a backup. Um, so the branches closed, the call centers closed. How can they serve customers? Answer, they can't. And they're not. Um, the challenger banks, uh, and uh, it's not true of all of them, but many of them had already geared up for a digital backup to their digital structures. They were running digitally. They'd actually um, tested and um, practiced the idea of remote working before the crisis hit in some cases, and they're still running consistently as normal. So yeah. there's a clear difference between a challenger digital bank and a traditional physical bank in this crisis. For me, what it actually will result in is um, maybe good news for people like Chris Skinner, which is that when we do come out of this, which we will, then there'll be a rush to digitalization. I mean, all the banks, all, and not just banks, but every business will be saying, we've got to get digital. We've got to be digital. We've got to do this in a remote structure. We've got to allow working from home. We've got to gear up for when the physical structures fail. Yeah. And here's a question, Chris, because I hear this a lot and I hear this from my friends in England that the call centers are, are, are really under performing under par, to put it politely. Um, do you think that has to do as well with the way they were treating call center support? Because I have to say that in the Netherlands, we don't experience that from our, uh, from our uh, you know, so let's say incumbent banks from the big four. Um But most of them will have the call center still over here with people who speak Dutch and understand very old people. Do, do you think that there's maybe a slight, uh, that we have been a bit overzealous in uh, offshoring everything? Well, I mean, it's a, a personal experience, so I don't know whether this applies to everybody, but um, I've had a big issue with one particular c c card issuer uh, that has their call center in India. And the issue began with the fact that having had easy access online to my card statements and transactions, uh, I suddenly was locked out, even though I was giving valid uh, logon details. Uh, and then um, I also was trying to log on because I was trying to get refunds from airlines for transactions on that statement. 
Uh, and I didn't know which statement the transactions were on, whether it was that card issuer or another card issuer. So I contacted the call centre, and the call centre is offshore in India. India shut down. Suddenly, the card issuer is saying, sorry, our call centre's closed. We can't talk to you. And equally, I can't get online because the online system is broken. The system completely shut down, and they have no backup. And this is what I mean by an example of a physical company that depends on a global structure of offshore and onshore services, and it just all breaks, and they have no backup plan. It's ridiculous. Now, and it is, of course, part of our globalization, because even if you are in the make industry, uh, a friend of mine makes the most beautiful chandeliers, you can imagine. But if two or three components can't be flown in from China, you have to stop the entire production line. Yeah, and, uh, and we're all in a global supply chain. I mean, <laughs> one of the things, again, again that I've been philosophizing about is that we um, reach the stage that we're all taking it for granted that we can travel and you know visit globally and connect globally and yes we're connecting now between Poland and Netherlands um, via the internet um, we only do that because we know each other through lots of meetings physically and the network and, you know if you lose the physical network the digital network is fine but it really does raise these questions around how do relationships work in the future how does business work in the future if the supply chain fails yeah Good questions. Hey, hey, back to your book, uh, Chris. Um, you also said in your opening paragraph, tech is the biggest driver for change. But let's not belittle the others. 9-11, for example, made Americans aware of the inept nature of check processing and drove them towards online banking. Um, will Corona do the same for, say, contactless payments or other behavioral changes? Oh, I think there'll be massive behavioral changes in that um, one of the clear things right now is using physical structures is not working because we need to avoid germs and physical structures includes cash and cards and we're going to be saying you know the idea of um, transacting with cash and cards is going to not it might disappear but it's going to be avoided uh, you know we, we will not like it nearly as much as we did um, and by way of example living in Poland it's all contactless but nearly every contactless transaction requires a pin and every time I'm putting my pin into a terminal I'm thinking I'm picking up coronavirus germs you know <laughs> Exactly. So, so biometric payments um, that are contactless, um, and also you know the mobile wallet, um, which is contactless, will become something that's um, you know ubiquitous. I think fairly quickly because people will just say, "I don't like these behaviours. I don't want to be touching things anymore. I, I want to do everything remotely and contactless." Yeah. Once it's there, it will stay probably right. So. Chris, so you also talk about banks that get it in the book. And all banks are now busy at the front line and they will have to make choices. And at the same time, they now digit are digitizing and that's unavoidable. What should they focus on, you think? Um, close the sandboxes and inno hubs and bring it all in business line or leave the core alone and focus on delivery or relevant nudges to help customers? What do you recommend? Now, first... What do you think they do? Well, we discussed that a little bit already. And what do you recommend? Well, I think when everyone gets back to work and things return to some new normal, uh, which would not be like it was, um, then 
as I say, a lot of banks will start to look at how can we do things where people work from home as a matter of fact rather than as an unusual activity. Um, how do we deal with customers digitally in a better way? Um, and in particular, um, you know, hopefully they'll buy my book, um, but they will behave very differently. Uh, I, I mean, the new normal uh as I mentioned earlier, will be one where we take digital connectivity as a matter of fact. Um, and what concerns me is, A, that we didn't have a physical disaster recovery plan. Um, and yet most companies, most banks have a disaster recovery plan for their technology. But yeah. B, when we do create physical disaster recovery plans, how do we create um, secondary and um, tertiary disaster recovery plans for the network. The one thing that's worried me throughout the whole of this crisis is, is, is if the internet failed, if my technology failed, what, yes. would, what would we do? I would go that shit crazy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Moving on from there, um, because I, I, I do think, you know, I, let, let me put it this way. I really hope that banks will stop seeing digitization as sort of part of the strategy, but as the strategy and that they, whether they, you know, I'm not saying they should close down innovation hubs, but they really have to embrace the business line in this whole process and really take it to the core. So let's hope they buy the book, they read it, and they want to be in the book. Just on that one, Connie, um, you know, yeah. one of the key things I've said in all of my books, but explicitly in this one, is that you cannot treat digital as a secondary you know, function. You can't delegate it. You can't say it's given to a chief digital officer and someone else does it and the board and the executive team carry on doing something else. It has to be, you know, ubiquitous and pervasive through the whole of the company's DNA. It must be in everyone's blood in the bank, not just in the CDO or whoever you thought you delegated it to. Any bank that treats this as a delegated function is going to fail in the future. And again, this crisis really brings that to a head to say you've got to get this through the whole of the executive team you can't just make it something that's given to a CIO or CFO absolutely no, no I mean I, I agree with you and, and only a month ago I heard a bank uh, director say to me yeah well digital is one of our channels and I thought well you, you, you know digital is not a channel but hopefully we will not have to listen to all that crap anymore my favorite blo- my favorite blog I ever wrote was never mind the channels avoid the bullshit <laughs> Well, here we are. Well, we've had all the naughty words in. So let's talk on to the, the, the second big topic because, you know, you're speaking to somebody who serves the fintech industry. I am a fintecher. You are in the fintech. So we're all uh, thinking as well, of course, and, and making plans and uh, thinking about the impact on the whole funding and valuation in this paradigm. And I think all of us agree that some of the valuations were a bit crazy. If you're, if you're as old as we all are, you know that those things have a very, you know, they tend to fluctuate and they don't have a sort of everlasting lifetime. But of course, I read up about it and Finch Capital, which is a venture uh, capital firm focusing on fintech and property tech, issued um, a paper last week, they were pretty early on with this, called The The Future of Disruptive and Enabling Financial Technology Post-COVID-19. 
And so I have to say that in a red ocean of, you know, fake expert in opinions, um, it was a breeder of context and that. So you could agree or not agree with it, but let's take a look at it together. And, and I want to take you, I, I want to take out three points and put them to you for your view. And the, and the first of all is really their timeline. Um, and it's not so much whether it's their timeline or anybody's timeline, but they say expect a crisis mode until Q3 of this year followed by 12 to 18 months of recoveries, basically really throughout uh, 2021. Uh, I mean, what is your view on it? Yeah, I mean, first is that um, I got that report and was really impressed that a company had produced something so quickly that gave such a reasoned analysis of where we are and how fintech will play out in the future. Um, I find it interesting that most companies... because. You and I, we all do a lot of conferences and all the spring conferences were postponed, cancelled. But what amazes me is they've kind of rearranged everything so it's all coming back in September onwards. Um, And the one thing I'm thinking is that September onwards we're going to see too many conferences um, because everything that was spring will be added to everything that was already planned for the fall. Um, But secondly, we're going to see this unleashing of demand for people to engage and work um, because they've had to be on furlough or at home for two or three months. I think, you know, obviously we all hope this will be ended by June. Um, there's no guarantee of that. When you look at what's happening right now in Asia and particularly in Japan and South Korea, um, they started to unlock the doors and then they've had to lock them up again. Um, so we've no idea how long this will last. So a lot of people, including Donald Trump, dare I mention the name, um, think that this is going to be... <laughs> well, they think it's going to be something that will be killed by the summertime. Uh, I don't believe that because wherever there's summertime in one part of the world, there's winter in another part of the world, there's still going to be coronavirus during the summer. So we just hope this will all be ended. And when it is ended, I think there'll be a massive unleashing of demand for digital services. Yeah. Then I'd like to get your view on two predictions that they made on one strong assumption. And their assumption is digital only will be the new norm and accelerate the current trends. And they're talking, of course, about banking. I think you would agree with that. We spoke about it earlier. But let's take one prediction at a time. Digital only will trigger a big pocket online battle between the incumbents and the challenges to win. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I mean, I was having this debate with um, someone yesterday around um, N26 and Bunk and the fact that they're trying to introduce fees and what that means to customers and will customers stay with them as they introduce fee um, generating services. Uh, on the one hand, the challenges definitely need to generate income and revenue. On the other hand, as soon as they start behaving more and more like a traditional bank, the more and more people who were hovering will stay with their traditional bank. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I think that's the big balancing act challenge for all of them. <laughs> Yeah, I think some of the challenges will succeed because behaviorally they're doing some fantastic things. But what I normally come back and say is um, most people will end up being multi-banked. They'll have boring old bank doing their boring old things and doing their highest risk transactions like mortgages and lending. And then they'll have their lifestyle banks doing their lifestyle activities, their everyday needs, which are the challenger banks because they do lots more analytics on their life. Yeah. Hey, Chris, and what do you think about the drying up of what I would call very cheap money? Um, Because that can, of course, threaten uh, 
any fintech, you know, um, because, you know, if, if, the, if the money becomes harder to get, you know, um, running business plans where there's no need to see any level of profitability on a three-year timeline, I think that's going to be challenging business case. Yeah, I mean, the fintechs will find it harder to get money, but in general, society's finding it much easier to get money because it's being created out of thin air. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. And guess who are going to pay for it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you're right. I mean, a lot of the fintechs that had these high valuations are struggling right now. And um, I know a number of them are shutting down business lines, um, laying people off, um, looking at their operations and thinking about how they're going to survive. Um, and... It's not going to be easier. I mean, the, the bottom line is that everybody needs a bailout, not just the, yeah. you know, the public, but the, the startups. And if you're a startup and you need a bailout and you've got very short-term financial stress, um, it's difficult to resolve. Going back to what I was saying, if, if the call centers are closed and if the access to the finance is closed, then you may fail. And that's going to be a fact of life. But, a, but there could be a role for the private equity or, or the venture capitalists, right? I mean, uh, I was a little bit... Um, well, troubled, um, the least what I can say is that they're all now shouting like, hey, we need help, we need help. But I mean, they are putting money into companies, right, with debt, and they get the equity out as soon as possible. And it's risk capital. So, I mean, when things go well, they drive in a Porsche and now things go bad. So now that they should put the money where their mouth is and put the money back in the companies they support, I guess. Yeah, um, but easier said than realized. I mean, probably both of you, because I included, realize this, is that when you hit a moment like this and everything stops, <clears throat> the one thing that becomes the most important thing is liquidity. And so you want money in the bank. You want to be able to cover your ass. And if you feel that you're going to be in months of lockdown, then the last thing you're going to do is put the money out into something third party. You're going to keep it in your account. Um, and so right now, you know, I've, I've got outstanding um, debts and I'm just going, whatever, you know, let's, w let's wait until the end of this pause and then I might think about paying you. I'm not going to pay you whilst we're paused. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, so back to the report. Um, no, no, hang on, so Brian. We have one more question that I want to put to Chris before oh, we jump right. into your bit, because this is a very important one. I'm, I'm rather selfish here. <laughs> You will understand it once I post the question. Um, Finch says, um, financial institutions will turn to fintech company to tech companies rather than in-house to accelerate digital transformation. Yeah. Um, again, we've talked a lot about co-creation partnerships, working together in, in, in an ecosystem. Um, and this drive to digitalization post-pandemic is going to be something that's going to create a significant turnaround for open banking. Um, so the whole idea of APIs, open banking, uh, partnership and co-creation will become something that's actually given much more um, solidification and support than there was before the pandemic. Because, you know, 
again, one of the points I keep saying is that banks can do a lot of things well, but they can't do everything well. And if there's 12,000 startup companies that are doing one thing brilliantly, a bank can't do 12,000 things brilliantly. They can do a few things brilliantly, and they'll have to find the partnerships and these um, companies out there that can help them to fill in the gaps. And there's huge amounts of gaps that have been exposed by the pandemic in their lack of digitalization, which they have to fill post-pandemic. Yeah, and I also think, you know, what banks often don't realize is that already they have a huge cost burden of sort of dealing with compliance efforts in technology. And then for new development, I always think, why don't you just take that amount of your R&D books, you know, because if you work with new tech companies, you know, it's not as if you're investing huge amounts of money up front, you literally pay as you go as well. And for some reason that never, banks always think like, oh, well, if you can make it, I have more people, I can make it faster. And it's just not true. Well, I mean, one of the banks in my book is JP Morgan Chase. Um, and one of the things I say in the book is that, although I've picked these five banks, BBVA, ING, China Merchants Bank, DBS, JP Morgan Chase, it doesn't mean they're all doing digital brilliantly. Um, but I think they're trying to do it better than most. Uh, but one yeah. of the things about JP Morgan Chase, which struck me after I wrote the book, in fact, is that they um, released something online, which they changed shortly after they released it. But I caught it when it was released, so it's in my presentations. And it was that they have 50,000 engineers, which is more than Twitter and Facebook combined. Yeah, they have 250,000 employees, of which 50,000 are in IT in some way, which in one hand you go, wow, that's phenomenal. On the other hand, you go, why the hell have you got more engineers than Twitter and Facebook? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So back to the um, to the report. And then I think we have to go uh, to a little bit to the closure. So the, for sure, it will be a third time you come, uh, you come to us, um, Chris. So in the report, you have a few winners, um, the landing platforms. Uh, you agree? Uh, sorry, Brian, what, which platforms? The, the landing platforms. Landing platform. Landing. Oh, landing. Sorry, landing. Yeah, landing. I think landing. Right, right, I, I think of airplanes landing. Okay. Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think they will go down, actually. <laughs> so, well, we asked the question. The lending platforms. Uh, the lending platforms, yeah. I, I mean, overall, I believe that you have to come down to thinking about decentralized distributed structures and the lending platforms that are peer-to-peer -peer were the first that really understood that. So peer-to-peer -peer connectivity, allowing someone um, like we are now, you know, having a discussion and a meeting, maybe transacting value uh, is what the lending platforms were the first to get. And when you remove all the physicality and just have a digital connectivity and with distributed, uh, decentralized, de-risked finance, which is what the lending platforms understood like Zopa and Sophie, then you strip out all the overheads and you have pure markets and and that marketplace pure marketplace ecosystem uh, is, is definitely a winner and the lending platforms like Zopa and Sophie got that first yeah yeah true hey and uh, well we discussed it already because the challenger banks I mean for me it's a, it's a big discussion in the sense that um, I agree with you that of course they're digital so it should be but on the other hand you have the human behavior which is like hey I've got other problems to solve now let's go back to my old bank right because at, at least you know I've got my account there so that will be a big discussion but I think that we should do that in the third one um, Connie I think you have had a last very important question to Chris, correct? Yeah, um, 
Well, as I, as I said, this is proving to be not the most lighthearted podcast of the series, although you we're keeping it upbeat and I'm really, really happy with that, Chris. Thank you so much. There's one more uh, uh, big issue, really. You know, we all see the heart rendering images of China, New York, Italy, and they really bring home how global this is. And you also realize that politics lurk in every corner. And um, if, if you see, like, you know, my WhatsApp, is, I'm sure yours is, is flooded with people who politicize any decision that our leaders take. And some say China did a better job because it's not a democracy and they can just sort of be very forthright. And you and I know that Brits and the Dutch would be the first to rebel when called in line. So how do you look at the difference of this more authoritarian approach versus a more liberal approach in these matters? What do you think works better? In the, also bearing in mind this cannot last you know, this this is going to run longer than a few weeks. And, and danger of getting into a very political discussion, but I try to not be too politicised. Um, I mean, I've been um, in the generation, like both of you, that grew up thinking America was great and we all wanted to live and behave culturally like Americans. Uh, and then I got disillusioned with that um, about 20 years ago when America became too politically co correct and they started to shut down freedom of speech, basically saying you can't say things like some of the things I've said on this podcast um, because yeah. words and act actions and views uh, is not allowed, which is amazing in the land of the free, um, which is not free. Um, and then I became a huge fan of China, even though I don't like Chinese politics. Um, but I think Chinese politics has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Um, obviously, uh, under Chairman Mao, China was completely different and no one was allowed to have any thought. You were just controlled by the government. Whereas now, China is not free, but it's a lot freer than it ever was. And it has a balance. And I think this crisis has kind of demonstrated that balance, which is that you know, the citizens of China recognize when the government has to act, then it has to act. And the lockdown in Wuhan and across China was so fast and so dramatic that it controlled the virus really quickly. And I think that is, illustrates the difference between America and China. You know, America didn't lock down at all. Donald Trump dismissed the whole thing as just the winter flu. And then suddenly America's become the sort of focus of all the deaths and disease that China managed to avoid. Um, and China's coming out of this much faster than American will because America wanted to give freedom of the people and China didn't, didn't allow freedom of the people. Um, and one of the things that, and one of the things really interesting for me is Martin Wolf in the Financial Times, um, who's also a great economic com commentator, said that this is the moment where China will start to take over from the USA and that the future's always been viewed as China, America as the two superpowers at, uh, you know, at each other's throats, particularly the trade tariffs demonstrate that. Um, but, but this is the point where it will turn because China dealt with this effectively and America has not. Yeah. Well, it is uh, uh, to the point of uh, our great uh, friend Peter Frankopan with his second book, the Sil Had the Silk Road. We uh, we are carefully reminded again that we the West has only been a superpower for a few hundred years in our existence. So, what role? Then finally, last question is: is what role should ethics play? Because we see a lot of apps that can trace people, share data to avoid spreading the virus. Um, when you know. 
and we're all in favor of that because we're in a crisis situation. Do you think we can turn the clock back once the crisis is behind us and we can get our personal data back? There's, there's no way we're going to turn back. Um, we have a new normal. What that new normal is, no one knows until we come out of the lockdown and uh, find some new normality. Um, one of the things that will play out of this is probably the fact that um, not only is there a rush to more digitalization, but probably a rush to more decentralization, uh, a recognition that too much power lies in the hands of too few and that we have to start to democratize the Internet and allow more ownership of our individuality than we had before. Um, but those are things that right now, to be honest, uh, inconsequential they don't really matter very much post pandemic when we get back to a new normality i think people will start to be more concerned about um how much data they give away and who owns it well thank you very much chris i was so happy to chat with you and to see you via whatsapp uh you know it's always nice to see friendly faces and um uh, let's have a listen to another one of our joint favorite tracks are we human or are we dancer? Are we human or are we dancers? Actually, I wanted to ask you, Chris, I mean, do you really believe that there are only 3,000 deaths in China? But uh, that will be for the, ne- for the next problem, because seriously, I-, I-, I like the story about China, but I don't believe the 3,000. But anyway, le- let's not ask that. Okay, for people to want to lecture themselves and others, there's a website, www.thefinancer.com, with blogs, papers, and anything for hungry fintechers. Curious, with crisis music favorites, Chris brought with him, Check out www.fintechcappuccino.com. Chris returns. Chris, thank you for joining us here at the Virtual Kitchen Table in the Fintech Cappuccino podcast. And thank you for listening to Fintech Cappuccino. Don't want to miss another cup? Subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And please give us a like or a review so many more Fintech Cappuccinos can then find us. And please join us again in two weeks. Saturday morning at nine, we'll have the coffee ready just the way you like it. Have a good weekend. Thank you very much, Chris. Keep a distance and stay close to each other. Be safe. Be safe. Stop. Don't stay close to each other. Avoid each other. Stay two meters away from each other. I mean spiritually, darling. Spiritually. We stay very close. <laughs>